It's good to see you all. Hope you've had a great week. I want you to open your Bibles. <laughs> open your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. It immediately follows Jonah chapter 1 and is directly in front of Jonah chapter 3. When I was in college, I was given a book that was full of verses for varying life situations. It was really small and in print that I can't read at the age of 43. But maybe, just maybe, you were given a book like that. And it's good and helpful for us to have verses that meet us in our times of trouble. It's probably problematic if we think the Bible is about our dumb roommate or our uh, Raymond noodle diet. So... We have to think, what does the Bible really say? What's it primarily trying to say to us? What is the Bible trying to teach us? My greatest memory of this came when I was uh, in college. I was a member of a church, and there was a lady who worked with our student ministry. She received a card from a 13-year-old girl, and it had a, ver a verse underneath it. It was just the card, whatever your uh, hallmark script is. The girl had signed her name, and she'd written Luke 11, 11 and 12 underneath it. Now, you more than likely don't know what Luke 11, 11 and 12 is off the top of your your head. So my friend took the Bible and she opened it to Luke 11, 11 and 12 and she read this verse out loud, this verse that was this friend had said, this makes me think about you. And the verse reads this, which of your fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give you a snake instead? That was it. This is the verse that comes to mind when I think of you, you snake. Uh, now, that doesn't tell us a whole lot about God. It, it feels like it doesn't tell us a whole lot of the story. If you were to read around it, you could see that there are numerous other pieces to the story. Things that you don't want to, to miss. But you need a few more verses. There are some verses, however, that work contrary to that. That give us a holistic idea of the understanding of the whole, go of the whole gospel. Of the whole message of what God has done for us in his son Jesus. Of the whole message of what God will, will eventually do to restore the world. To make all things right that are wrong. One of those is in Jonah chapter 2 verse 9. And it's where we get our big idea for today. And, and J Jonah 2 verse 9. At the very bottom of it. The last piece of it. You read this phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So the big idea that we have for today is that. Salvation belongs to God and God alone. Up to this point in the story, we've been journeying with Jonah. We've been on a boat. We traveled with him on said boat. We know that it was problematic while he was on the boat. And we notice that Jonah has been rebelling against what God would have him to do, who God would have him to be, how God would have him to act, what God would have him to say. He has been running against that in every single way. He is the person in the story who interacts with Yahweh and continually tells Yahweh no in chapter 1. Everything else is obedient to Yahweh. Yet Jonah is not. In verse 4, you see the waves, they obey the Lord. But Jonah, he doesn't. You get to verse 4 again, the wind obeys the Lord. But Jonah does not. That's lots. The lots obey the Lord. But Jonah does not. The sailors 
that are pagans, by the way, when the story starts. They obey the Lord and they fear Him. Jonah lives in his disobedience. He does not obey. Verse 17, the fish obeys the Lord by swallowing Jonah at the appointed time and then promptly spits him out at the appointed time at the end of chapter 2. But Jonah does not. Jonah, up to our meeting with him at the end of chapter 2, has been disobedient to Yahweh in every single way. What happens when this God who owns salvation wants us to meet with him? Jonah chapter 2, read with me in your Bibles. It'll be on the screen as well, if I'm not mistaken. Jonah... Let's pick up in verse 17 of chapter 1. We'll carry over. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside. Sheol, you heard my voice when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of of the sea, the currents overcame me. All your breakers and your billows, they swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth gate shut behind me from shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayers came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols. Abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. Salvation belongs to God. Solely, completely, and wholly. It wholly belongs to Him for you to be made holy, holy. We see in this passage up to this point, we've had this recurring word great just running through it. We have the great city of Nineveh. We have great fish. We have a great plant. The word fish there is, uh, it, it can trip people up if we're not mistaken. You can fall over the fish. In the New Testament, you see the word whale when Jesus references that. In the original language, the word for fish is, is dag. If you are unfamiliar with the concept of dag, think about it like this. If I were to say, Jared smells like up dag, and you would say, what's up dag? And I would say, I don't know, what's up with you? The idea here of dag is, is this thing in the water. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's a whale or a fish. Some have even said that it may be a a sea monster of sorts. The notion of a sea monster in this, you could picture the the Loch Ness monster, though it really looks like a giraffe, and I think that its neck would be too small to swallow Jonah. 
The idea is not necessarily the fish that happens to swallow him, even if it is a giraffe with flippers. We notice in this text that God is taking us the idea that something would take place in the life of Jonah where he would be in a place where all of his running and all of his rebelling and all of his fleeing and all of his fighting, he would come to this place where he can't move. And in the place where you can't move, you have to stop and look around and think, why am I here? What is the purpose for me being here? When you're in this constricted, tight place, I hate tight things. I hate compact cars. I hate elevators. I hate pants. I hate all of these things. Jonah's in this passage and he's in the tightest place. And as he's locked in this place, he's interacting with Yahweh. And in his interaction with Yahweh, he is realizing and acknowledging all that's taking place to get him here. That every decision that he made in rebellion was bringing him to this place. That God would use these unique places. Because though God's salvation is great, it's not always gentle. I think any of us who would testify to the goodness of God in our lives would point to the place where that goodness didn't feel great. We could look and we could acknowledge and we could see the, the harshness of what might have brought us to where we happen to be. Timothy Mackey of the Bible Project says this about the idea of us thinking that God is going to do nice things in our lives when we make the nice decision to follow a nice deity. He said, most of us have the default assumption that we invite God into our lives to give us smooth passage to our chosen destination. Hopefully with a little safety and security along the way. What stories like Jonah teach us is that if your idea of God, that his greatest priority is to make you safe and comfortable and happy, you might as well become an atheist now. Your whole life experience is going to show you how naive that view of God actually is. And I know some of you well enough to know that your stories are are those stories where you could speak to the deepest, darkest places that you've been to, where God would remind you that you had to meet with Him in the midst of that depth, in the belly of the beast, in the shadow of despair, and that you would be reminded that that God is the God who has promised to be with you. The idea of God meeting with His people in these places... We read in Psalm 120 a passage that you may or may not be familiar with, but it almost echoes some of the notions that we see in the book of Jonah. You can see the idea of the rescue of Yahweh in the the place of of this person and how God has worked in the nation of Israel in similar ways to the way that we would see him work in Jonah's life. Meeting with him in the midst of the madness and the muck and the mire of his situation. It says this in Psalm 124, If the Lord had not been on our side, and let Israel, let Israel say, if the Lord had not been on our side, when people attacked us, and then you get to these verses. Verse 3, Then they would have swallowed us alive. In, the burning, in their burning anger against us, then the water would have engulfed us. The torrent would have swept over us. The raging water would have swept over us. Blessed be the Lord, who has not let us be ripped apart by their teeth. 
We've escaped like a bird from the hunter's nest. The net is torn and we have escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. If you're unfamiliar with the story of Jonah, chapter 1, he asked to be thrown overboard. When he is thrown overboard, he is asking to plummet to his death. And God rescues him. So often we read this story as if God was rescuing Jonah from the well. He's rescuing him through it. It is through the well that Jonah is rescued. As he is seeking and satisfied in the idea that he would die in that murky water, God meets him there. God meets him in the water. That is reminiscent in the Old Testament teachings of of darkness and, and fear. And in that dark, fearful place, God meets him in that water and says, Life can come from, come from this. To be uncomfortable. Mercy can be uncomfortable. I, I was... I, I had to do a funeral this week. And when the plane landed to, to get me home... Everyone did what they do on planes. I don't know if we should give directions for how to behave on planes. But everyone did what they do when they, the plane lands. Everyone jumped up and began moving toward the front of the plane. Has anyone ever felt this? If you've ever been this person, you should, we will have a time of repentance later. Wait your turn. But as they're all flooding to the front of the plane... Bags of people slamming on other people's shoulders. You hear this announcement from the front. Ladies and gentlemen, hang tight. The door on the plane is stuck. My mind starts to race. I'm never going to get off of this thing. I will be here on the Houston Hobby Airport until the air runs out. This really fearful moment. Honestly, if if I'm being completely transparent with you, this overwhelming anxiety came there. This discomfort in my situation. People standing over me. There's the idea of what we have with Jonah in the belly of this fish. Surrounded on all sides by nothing, just a little bit of room for him to pray. And Jonah begins to pray, and as he begins to pray, he's calling out to Yahweh. Because he's like most of us. He's really quick to pray in crisis. He's not so quick to pray when he's being disobedient. Who wants to talk to God when you're disobedient? But when Jonah hits bottom, God's going to use death to deliver. What does God expect for us to see from a story like this? This extreme hyperbolic story of the person of Jonah. Verse 2. I called to the Lord in my distress and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside of Sheol. Yet you heard my voice. All that running. He's quick to pray. When you threw me into the depths and the heart of the sea. The currents, they overcame me. All your breakers, all your billows, they swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more toward your holy temple. He's in the darkest pit, the deepest place, the scariest situation. And God is going to meet him there, and he's going to give life where death should be. We will come to this place if we have not already. 
where we are in this deep, dark, despair-filled situation. And hopefully we will realize that God offers to meet us there and offer life in exchange of where death should be. Again, I've been able to be the pastor of this sweet body of people for, for just a few years. And for some of you, I know your stories. I know how you could say that very thing, that God met you in the deepest, darkest places and offered life where death should be. And for those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus, I hope and I pray and I would realize that when we met with God, what God was doing in that moment was exchanging for you life where death should be. God meeting his people and offering them hope. We see Jonah allude to the temple two times in this text, verse 4 and in verse 7. And when he alludes to the temple, he's alluding to something bigger. He's alluding to something better. He's pointing out, even though he may not realize that he's pointing out, something eternal and extravagant that Yahweh himself has done for his people. Because the temple is a foreshadowing of God's salvation. We think of it when we get to John chapter 2, when Jesus just turned over the tables because they've, for whatever reason, chosen to have a, a zoo in there. And after he flips over the tables and has a whip of cords, his disciples remember that it is written, zeal for the house will consume me. But the Jews, these Pharisees, they replied to Jesus, What sign will you show us for these things? And Jesus answered to them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. God meeting us with life where death should be. The Jews said to Jesus, Hey, the temple took... They didn't say hey, but in my head they did. This temple took 46 years to build. Will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about his body. Three days, three nights in the belly of a fish. Three days, three nights. Jesus offering life and presenting life where death should be. The water it engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths, they overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. The visual here is clear. Jonah is going to the very bottom. Seaweed wrapped around his head. I sank to the foundation of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. This is the end for me. Then, then you raised me from the pit. Friends, up to this point, as the writer of the book of Jonah has unpacked this, he has been unpacking for us what seemed to be insurmountable, irreversible situations. I don't know the last time you had your head wrapped in seaweed, but it sounds super bad. But it is in that place where death is that Yahweh meets this rebellious running prophet and offers life where death should be. 
As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Again, we are foreshadowing what God is going to do. This prophet, this prophet going to people to say something to them about responding to Yahweh. Jonah, and we will deal with Jonah for the next two weeks, but Jonah doesn't love Nineveh ever. And many times we read this text and we miss something. When God sends a prophet to people, he is not sending to judge. When God sends a prophet to people, he is sending to offer repentance. His presence offers repentance. If God wants to judge people, he will. Because he is God, whose salvation belongs to alone, he can declare judgment on me, on you, on the entirety of the earth without whispering a word to us. If God wants to judge people, he will. His prophets are God offering his people a chance to repent. And we look into this text and we see that about the prophets over and over recurringly. Initially, he sends a prophet. And they will call for repentance. Primarily, holistically, and completely, his son Jesus comes and calls for repentance and enables it. Yet today, for those of us who would claim that we believe that salvation is in God and God alone, he sends you as his people to point to the hope of it. That repentance is something that people can do. That your presence and my presence and the God who we claim we belong to, that we in the midst of a sinful world that is far from Him would say, there's hope beyond this. We don't have to remind people of death. Death surrounds us. Verse 8. Those who cherish worthless idols. The word there literally means, it reads, those who cherish empty nothings. They abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what God has vowed because salvation belongs to the Lord. Pointing to the idea that there's hope beyond. Hope beyond a moment. Hope in the midst of darkness and despair and death. We're reminded of what we see in John chapter 3. Where we read this, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, so that whoever would believe in Him would not perish, but would have eternal life. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. God is doing this unique thing in this passage that he is doing in the world. He is saving us to life through death. When we point to the temple and the passage, we're being reminded that God saves to life through death. We are reminded of that not just in this passage, but in every meal that we eat, every bite that we take. We take in nothing that at some point was not alive. We are saved from to life through death. But for the believer in Jesus, God takes us to this more massive idea 
that God would save to life through death. Now, there are people who love to argue about Jonah. Jonah is one of the most argued about passages in the whole of the Bible. People love to argue about the, what's taking place there. Was this super duper literal or was there something figurative? All of these conversations. You feel free to Google and find whatever heretic you want. To say whatever you would like for them to say. They love to fight about stuff like this. Two things I don't want to say. One is this. When we read through the Bible, we should always take it seriously. Whether it's a parable, whether it's a prophecy, whether it's a psalm, the Bible is always something for us to take seriously. Another thing that I would not want us to miss from a passage, that God is showing to us that He can always save from life to life through death. People would say, well, I mean, there is a conversation that one preaching professor at Dallas Theological had about this text. He points out, that he believed that Jonah literally died in the belly of the fish whale dag. He'd be like, I don't think Jonah could have died. God brings people back from death to life all of the time in the Old Testament. If he got swallowed by a whale, if that brother's not dead, he's as good as dead. If we're having a conversation about Jonah, what happened to Jonah? You just point to the water and you know. But God here is saving from life to life through death. The Lord commanded the fish in verse 10. And it spat Jonah, vomited. Let's just say vomited. I correct my kids when they but we say it here. It's in the Bible. Vomited Jonah onto dry land. But when he vomited Jonah, he didn't just vomit Jonah. He threw him out. Now, we're not sure exactly where this all took place. Did Jonah get thrown onto the shore and have to walk to Nineveh? We don't know. Did the fish, whale, dag, spit Jonah the length of where he was in the water? Well, if he did, that's a 375-mile spit. You remember when you were a kid and you would compete to see who could spit bubblegum the furthest? The fish wins. But what I don't want us to overlook when we read through Jonah chapter 2, because it's a, I mean, what a great, huge, serious story about the nature and character and mercy of God. One of the saddest elements of the story of Jonah, to me, is this. He has quoted from the Psalms seven times in this text. He knew the Psalms. He understood the Psalms. Not only would he have known the Psalms, he would have known the whole of Scripture. Even though he knew the Psalms, he ends up still hating Nineveh. Loathing Nineveh. Caring nothing about Nineveh. There is not only the idea that he hates Nineveh present in the passage... There is a hint that he hates Yahweh for being who Yahweh is. Because he hates Yahweh because Jonah knows if I'm going, God's going to give these people a chance. And he hates the idea that Yahweh will be slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and mercy to the thousandth generation. Jonah is a picture for us of a scary, scary truth. 
You can know the Word of God and not have the heart of God. There's a chance in me and in you that that's possible. If we never see ourselves as Jonah when we read a passage like this, do you know whose place we've put ourselves in? We've chosen to take the posture of God if we are the one who reads this text and never sees our wrongdoing. This text is taking us to the idea of God exposing to people for any of us. If you are not a believer, for you to have life, it will come through death. If you are a believer, your life is not something that you have because you started being righteous and started being right when you started to follow Jesus. Your life as a believer in Jesus always comes from Jesus. And the posture of our hearts has to be shaped by the idea of who this God is recurringly in Scripture. Compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Pointing out sin so that he can point to hope. Not pointing out sin for the sake of pointing it out. You can know what God says about various sins and still not see them the way that God does. You can know what God says about murder and still hate in your heart, which is wicked sin. You can know what God says about His views of sexuality and still act on your lust in a way that displays and conveys wicked sin in you. We could go on and on with our list. You can know what God says about your neighbor and so hate your neighbor in your heart. You can know what God says about trusting him and still not trust him with your life. You can know what God says about being aligned with him and still live in rebellion. We can keep on running. What if, what if, what if? God would use a text like this to offer an invitation to those of us who've never believed in Jesus to know that salvation is found in God alone. And what if, maybe, just maybe, God would use this text in the heart of believing people this morning to return you to that truth that you may have overlooked or ignored that salvation has never stopped belonging to God and God alone. Let's bow our heads this morning. I'm going to read the verses that Jared read earlier over us yet again. Would we see where the Word of God begins to shape His people to have the heart of God? Meeting with Him in our deepest, darkest places.
Maybe today you would hear this and you would call to him in your distress. I called to him in my distress and he answered me. I cried out from deep inside of Sheol. You heard my voice when you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the sea. The current overcame me. All your breakers and all your billows swept over me. And I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gate shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my soul was fading away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish empty nothings and worthless idols, they abandon their faithful love. But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. If you need me, I'm in the back right, my back right hand corner.